Happy Wednesday to everyone. I hope you're having a wonderful week. What a beautiful week it has been so far, and certainly today is no exception. As we gather today for Bible study, I hope that you have experienced God's goodness, His love, His mercy, and so many different expressions. I know that we've received some good news in the last 24 hours that maybe some of the restrictions will be changing as we go through the coming weeks, and we certainly pray that God will provide the wisdom and the guidance that's needed with regard to that. I know that many of you, as you tune in week by week, whether for Bible study, Sunday school, or worship, you have a number of needs that are close to your hearts and your minds, and we certainly want to be mindful of that as we go to the Lord in prayer. So would you join me in prayer before we dive in to the remainder of Matthew 12? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of this day, for this opportunity to come together as your people. Lord, we know that we are a people in process. We continue to learn and grow and develop in our faith each and every day. We know that as long as we are in this life, that there's still room for improvement. But Lord, we do not go about this task on our own. We know that your Spirit abides with us and in us to continue shaping us and drawing us closer and closer to you. Lord, I ask a special blessing upon all of my brothers and sisters as they view this time together. Whatever needs are close to their hearts and their minds, if they be physical, spiritual, emotional, Lord, you know the struggles that so many people are battling with, even those things that so often we try to keep concealed. I just pray a special touch of your hand upon everyone who is viewing here tonight that they would be blessed. And then as a result of this teaching, go forth and seek to be a blessing in the days to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As I mentioned there in my opening remarks, we'll be concluding chapter 12 of Matthew and then beginning chapter 13. I'm hoping to get a little ways into that. I at least want to set the stage for chapter 13 because now we're going to be moving into some additional teaching material, but in a slightly different way from the teaching that Jesus has done so far in the Gospel of Matthew. But before we get too far along, we must pick up in chapter 12 at verse 33. It's an image that we've already heard slightly earlier in the gospel of Matthew and it's that related to a tree and its fruit the fact that whatever is produced is a true indication of what's going on on the inside for example an apple tree is not going to produce oranges uh, an orange grove is not going to produce grapes. And the same can be said in this teaching from Jesus that if we are a people who are contaminated on the inside, it is going to be hard, if not impossible, for us to produce anything that looks like the kingdom of God. Would you join with me as we pick up in chapter 12 at verse 33? Jesus said, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person brings good things out of a good treasure, and the evil person brings evil things out of an evil treasure. I tell you, on the day of judgment, you will have to give an account for every careless word that you utter, 
For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. It's kind of an uncomfortable territory, if you will, to look at what Jesus has just said. He's been wrestling with the Pharisees. They accused him in the previous section of casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons, Beelzebub. The latter part of that section said that all sins can be forgiven except to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, to reject the salvation that we have through Christ, to turn our backs so far on God that we get to that point that we're no longer sensitive to the sins that we're exposed to. When we get to the point that we are numb and can no longer experience conviction, then we know we are in dangerous territory when it comes to our relationship with God. And in this section, Jesus builds off of that because it's been the words, the grumblings, the slander, if you will, of the Pharisees that are trying to discount and ultimately destroy the ministry of Jesus. But here, Jesus does very similar to what James will write about later on in the New Testament. He addresses the important place of the tongue and how words can either make or break a personal testimony. Jesus says in so many words as that section opens up that a tree cannot be both things at one time. It's either going to be good and it's going to produce fruit that is luscious and tasty and something that is pleasing or it's going to be rotten. It's going to be disgusting. It's going to be something that needs to be thrown out in the garbage. But you can't have a mixture of good and bad fruit. I think it's probably a great word for us today because we know we all struggle with words. We know that we slip up from time to time. We say things that we never intended to say, but in the heat of battle, in the heat of a disagreement, it just came up, it came out so quickly that we aren't even really aware until it's too late. And we know that with that slip of the tongue, we can't simply say, oh, well, let me take those words back. Let me swallow them as if they never took place. It's out there, and it gives an indication of what's really at work on the inside. I know that's been something that's gotten a lot of people in trouble, whether politicians or athletes. We've heard of some of that here in recent weeks. But once a word is spoken, you can't take it back. And even if you try to explain it away, justify it, etc., there's no way. The damage has been done And even when we seek to apologize, we seek to make up, we seek to bring healing to that wound, it's going to be a long time in the making, if ever. In fact, as we hear it said in life, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And to that I say, yeah, right. It sounds like a fun little saying for children back in elementary school, but we know that as we grow, the words that people say to us, they sting, they bite, and they even contain the power of death. They destroy a person's testimony, but they also have the power of wrecking someone else to the point we can spend a lifetime trying to repair that breach, but it's simply not going to take place. And here Jesus uses language that's very strong. 
It's the language of John the Baptist early on when he was speaking to the Pharisees, when they were coming out to observe what John was doing in the wilderness. John looked at them and point out, pointed out and point blank said, you brood of vipers, you sons of snakes, who warned you that a time of reckoning, a moment of judgment is coming? It really surprised him that the Pharisees, whether they were there with the right motives or the wrong motives, the fact that they appeared in the wilderness, most likely to critique and criticize John the Baptist, but he knew the kind of people that they were. Now, not all Pharisees were necessarily terrible people. There were some who were truly sincere in their motives, but then again, there were others who fit more of that hypocritical mold that we, we are accustomed to associating with the Pharisees. As Jesus gets into this teaching, he cuts to the core, the source of where those things come from. The fact that we can't simply say, well, my tongue just got out of control, as if our tongue can some way, somehow manhandle our body, take control of all of our abilities, and say whatever it wants to say on its own terms. Here Jesus points out that those things that come out of our mouths have to begin somewhere, and they begin where we can't see. They begin in a person's heart, and we find out a lot about what's in a person's heart by how they relate to others through words. Yes, we can say, well, that's just not me, or I've, I've never used that word, I, I've never done such a thing, and we can try again to justify those things or explain it all away, but here Jesus says it's more than a word problem, it's more than a speech issue, it's a matter of the heart, and until the heart is dealt with, it's going to be impossible for a person to speak words of encouragement, blessing, affirmation on another person. It was the heart that was the real issue with the Pharisees. Yes, they had some strong convictions, beliefs, if you will, when it came to the law, the interpretation of the law, the living out of the law in that day and time, but when you really get down to it, it was the fact that the Pharisees needed an overhaul. That They needed a change of heart, and the same can be said for us today. Until we allow God to do some radical work on the inside, until we allow God to really have his way and to mold us and remake us, it's going to be impossible, not just for us to speak the good words of life that God would have us to speak, but even to live, to practice, to walk the faith on a daily basis until God fixes it here, it's a very superficial expression of faith and righteousness. Here Jesus says, I tell you the truth on the day of judgment. You will have to give an account for every careless word. Some translations use there the word idle. Idle words. What in the world is an idle word? An idle word is essentially a dead word. It's a word that does not serve any purpose. No positive impact is experienced because of those words. It's a word just to be spouting. 
And I'll go ahead and be honest, we're, we're all guilty of that. When we get into the heat of a, a moment when we're really frustrated with something, we all say those things. When we just really are fed up and we're at our wits end when it comes to another person, we just go off and we just kind of let the, as one of my professors used to say, we allow the, the verbal diarrhea to fly. And here Jesus is honest. He says, for the things that we say which accomplish absolutely no good in this world, we're going to give an account for that. You know, it's difficult to confront another person when we've hurt them verbally, to try to explain everything away, and it gets us kind of uneasy. We're a little bit squeamish, kind of nervous feeling when we try to, to go and extend an apology. But can you imagine one day standing before the God of all creation and trying to explain to God why you and I said what we said. We really don't have a leg to stand on, according to Jesus here. He says our words can go a long way. Our words can bring healing and hope to the world. They can do some really positive things, but then at the same time we can be condemned. Those very words, that very tongue, as James says elsewhere, which, as he describes it there, both blessings and curses come from it. And it shouldn't be that way because fresh and brackish water can't come from the same water source. The same is true for our words. What are our words today saying about us? How are they conveying the good news of Jesus Christ? Or... How are they detracting from our witness? How are they hindering us from making Christ known within the world? At verse 38, we hear these words. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster or the whale, so for three days and nights the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. The people of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah. And see, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon and see something greater than Solomon is here. The sign of Jonah. It's a puzzling response. Jesus never gives us easy answers as we've already established. Ask Jesus a question and he'll give you a question of his own. And here, the scribes and the Pharisees are wanting some type of validation from Jesus. And that wasn't uncommon in that day and time. If you saw someone who was doing something that was really good, really positive, potentially representing the kingdom of God, or maybe if a person came onto the scene and was acting pretty crazy and doing some radical things that made absolutely no sense whatsoever... 
it was not uncommon for people to go to that individual and say, well, well, who are you, where did you come from, and why are you doing this? What is the source of your power, your authority? And here, Jesus simply replies that a wicked and adulterous generation wants a sign. By that, we can certainly connect Jesus' words to the Old Testament prophets because there were a lot of times when God's people played the part of an unfaithful wife. And here we find that Jesus comes back at the Pharisees and says, well, basically, you're not any different from those who came before you, those who tried to to love God with one breath but then live life on their own standards with another breath. He says, I'll give you a sign. He's not going to give him a clear-cut sign. He's not going to say yes or no. He's going to say, I'll give you the sign of Jonah. And that's something that we may not really understand because when we think about the story of Jonah, we think about a prophet who heard a word from the Lord, jumped on a ship, went the opposite direction from where God had called him to go, and then was swallowed by a great fish, ended up going back to Nineveh, kind of against his will. He proclaimed to the Ninevite people, and much to his astonishment, the Ninevites repented in sackcloth and ashes. They were truly remorseful, sorry for their terrible behaviors. They changed as a result of the preaching of Jonah. And here you have another, except this is a person much more powerful than Jonah, who is now on the scene, and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. Some people are buying into it. Some people are joining the cause of God's kingdom. But then you've got those who are doing whatever they can to smear mud upon it. They're doing whatever they can in that moment to try to discount and discredit what Jesus is bringing into existence. Part of that illustration that he uses, not only was Jesus, like Jonah, a person bearing good news, bringing a word from God that people needed to get their lives reoriented, but we also find him saying that just as... Jonah was in the belly of the whale, so also the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. Jesus in that moment was pointing toward what was going to happen later on. The fullness of Jesus' ministry, as impressive as it was, as life-changing as it was in that moment, Jesus wanted his audience to realize that the best is still to come. If you really want validation for my ministry, then that doesn't happen until after my death, burial, and resurrection. The ultimate validation from God the Father Almighty, adding credibility to His Son Jesus' earthly ministry. It wasn't just the miracles. It wasn't just the powerful teaching. It would be through giving His life sacrificially and ultimately being resurrected that life would truly come. Now something that's sort of puzzling for people there, and I guess maybe as a side note, a sidebar if you will, how in the world do we get between Good Friday and Easter Sunday three days? Well, it's all in the Jewish perception of telling time. Because you see, for a Jew, any part of a day 
was considered to be a day. And so Jesus, he was crucified on Friday, went to the cross Friday morning, died middle of the afternoon, was put in the grave before sundown, before Sabbath. That portion, even though it wasn't 24 hours of a Friday, it still was considered to be a day on into the nighttime hours. And then you have the full day of Saturday, which would be the second day, a true 24-hour period. And then you have the start of the first day of the week, what we now know as Sunday. And even though we don't know the precise time that the women went and found the empty tomb, the fact is that something took place early that morning. And whether it was a few hours into the morning or already deep enough into the morning, that little span of time would constitute a day. So Jesus dies on Friday and is buried. You've got Friday night, you've got all day Saturday, and that little tidbit of Sunday morning gives you that third day. Again, Jewish perception of time. We're not dealing necessarily with three 24-hour periods, but any sliver of time could be counted as a day. I compare it to if you've ever rented a car, for example, and you rent it, say, for two or three days, but you miss the cutoff time for returning that car, and so you're charged for an extra day whether or not you actually drove the car for the entirety of that extra day or maybe for just a small window of time on that extra day, there's still that charge. Again, it's a little bit different, but still a similar idea to how the Jews would have told time in that day and time. And what Jesus really does to drive the point home, he uses illustrations from Gentile people. One, the horrible Ninevites, as cruel as they were, and then someone like the Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba, coming and experiencing God's wisdom through the words and the teachings of the great King Solomon. Again, an outsider, a foreigner coming in, but experiencing something of God through the King of God's people. And here Jesus says, those people one day will be able to give testimony because they came, they saw, they encountered God. Whether we're talking about the Ninevites, whether we're talking about the Queen of the South, whether we're talking about the other Gentiles around during Jesus' ministry. Jesus again points out that there are people rejecting amongst my own people what I'm here to do. The people I'm here to minister to, to teach, to save. You're rejecting. But yet the outsiders, the people that you all as the Jewish people have written off for so long, those are the ones who are more receptive to what God is now doing in the world. They are being more receptive to this work than you all are. And you all have the tradition of the Old Testament covenant and the law and the prophets. You've seen and experienced God working for generations within the Jewish faith. How can you not see and perceive and understand what God is doing right now in my work? Building upon that at verse 43, Jesus says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it wanders through waterless regions looking for a resting place. But it finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. 
When it comes, it finds it empty and swept and put into order. Then it goes and brings along seven other spirits more evil than itself. They enter and they live there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it will be also with this evil generation. Earlier in chapter 12, Jesus talked about the strong man being bound and tied up. And I used the comparison to what Jesus was already accomplishing then and there in his ministry. The fact that Satan, yes, was still trying his best to to upset, to, to go against the grain of God's kingdom work through Jesus but that the process was already unfolding of Satan being defeated. And here we find Jesus kind of building off of that teaching, and he says what we have to do is be careful, though. The person, even though he or she may have turned his or her life around to follow the way of Christ... If he or she is not careful, then he or she may fall back to that state that he or she was in long before. It's kind of like that old saying that we hear in our childhood. I remember my dad saying it to me in my teenage years that an idle mind is the, the devil's workshop. Some people would say the devil's playground. But when there's emptiness, when we don't have anything occupying our time, our thoughts, and so forth, it's easy for us to get some of those negative thoughts going. It's easy for us to get into some things that we don't need to be doing because we're not filling our time with something else. Here the illustration that Jesus uses is that, yes, a person can change his or her life and decide, hey, I'm going to follow God from this moment forward, but it's not simply a matter of getting rid of the bad stuff. It's not just an issue of purging oneself or allowing oneself to be purged of the things that are negative. But something has to go back in there to fill up that empty space or else it's going to be easy to fall back into those old patterns, habits, attitudes, etc. Jesus says that that person who falls back into his or her former lifestyle is essentially in a worse situation than before. It's something that we would call backsliding in our faith where we begin to follow Christ, we begin to have a passionate, zealous heart, we want the things of Christ, we want the things of God's kingdom, we want to be a new and different person, and we think, I got rid of all of those bad things, so that must make me a better person. But we have to be filling our lives with those things that help us grow in our faith, and that's where things that we would call spiritual disciplines fit in. I may get rid of some of my old habits and wasting time looking at this and doing this, things that were distracting me from God, but unless I start to plug in prayer, daily scripture reading, worship, and so forth, until my life is filled with those things that are growing my faith, I can go back quicker than I'm going forward. And that's one of the grave dangers, not only in that time that Jesus was speaking, but especially today because we are a people occupied. We are a people stretched out and pulled in many directions. And it's kind of one of my hopes, I've shared this before in our recordings, that if there can be anything positive to come out of this COVID-19, maybe the slower pace. 
the fact that for the better part of two months we haven't been able to run here and scramble there, that we've had to be home a little bit more. We've had to be quiet a little bit more. We haven't been able to be so busy, whether it's literally and physically or even within our minds and our hearts, it's caused us to slow that pace even just a little bit. And when that happens, then God has room to speak to us and to help grow and nurture our faith. The last part of the text is, as I shared a couple of weeks ago, a a bit of misunderstanding that Jesus' family had related to him. And you find there are other places in the Gospels where the family didn't necessarily understand or appreciate who Jesus was. His brothers in one portion of the Gospels did not believe him. They thought he was a little bit crazy. Then we find that his family tries to go and reason with Jesus because, well, he's getting the crowd stirred up a little bit. They're perceiving him to be a lunatic, and so they appear trying to, okay, Jesus, come along, calm this down, no need to cause a ruckus. In this moment, we don't have any negative attitudes or or anything like that on the part of Jesus' family. But here in 46, it says, while he was still speaking to the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. But the one who had told him this, Jesus replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus did not rebuke his family, but he did use that opportunity as a teachable moment for those in his audience to point out the kind of family that comes together when we are a part of the kingdom of God. The fact that, yes, we still have those blood bonds, those relationships between our mother and father, siblings, extended family, and so forth. But when we think about who we're called to be in Christ, we become a part of family. As I've heard it said before, no man is an island When you and I join the cause of Christ, when we embrace Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, we're not doing this in isolation. It takes all Christians, whether in this congregation, this denomination, or wherever they may be around the world, it takes all believers functioning together. And I believe that's one of the most beautiful images of what it means to be God's people. I think about that song that's well known by Bill and Gloria Gaither. I'm so glad that I'm a part of the family of God. When we become a Christian, it's no longer just about us and our salvation and our changes and our getting to heaven one day. It's about us being brought together as a people. As the author of Hebrews would go on to say, may we not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. It's important for believers to have fellowship with each other. Because it's in that moment that we find folks who are able to help mentor us in our faith. 
we're able to bring encouragement to others. As we begin to grow in our faith, we're able to reach back and help that next Christian as he or she is coming along, making sense of the faith. Family. And if we truly seek to do the will of God the Father, then we are committing ourselves to the family of God. We can't just get saved and think, okay, well, I'm on my way to heaven. That's all that matters. But it's about living a certain quality of life in the world, a life that is following the commands, the directions that God gives us, and allowing God to use us to be his representatives in the world around us. It's not family in the sense of, okay, we're, we're exclusive, this is us, nobody's coming in, nobody's going out, but it's about people seeing people, seeing people as God sees people, loving and caring, being with one another through our best and being with one another through our absolute worst. It takes all of us, sisters and brothers. It takes all Christians everywhere being the people of God. As we move into chapter 13, I think I just want to set the stage for this teaching, and we'll actually move into the depths, the riches of chapter 13 when we're together next time. But for here, we find that Jesus' teaching style changes. And if there's one thing that was so very powerful, if there was something that was very transformative about how Jesus did ministry, yes, the miracles were important. Yes, his lectures, if you will, were important. But it was in Jesus' ability to tell stories. If you've downloaded the notes for chapter 13, you'll notice that first phrase I have there at the top of the page. It says, there once was a man. When you and I hear those words, there once was a man, we know that we're in for something probably pretty good. Whether it's a childhood story that we think back from years ago, we know that stories do something for us that nothing else can convey. When we hear those words or when we read a storybook, we know that we're not picking up uh, the Wilson Daily Times or the News and Observer. We know that we're not picking up a press release that some company has sent out related to some new changes in policies and procedures. We know that when we hear a story, it's going to be something that draws us in. It's going to be something that really causes our imagination to, to pick up. It pulls us into the point that we relate to the characters, the locations, the plot as it begins to unfold. And it was the story that Jesus used, what we now know as the parable, which was so very effective as Jesus sought to convey the message of God's kingdom in ways that people could understand from everyday ordinary life. When I was growing up, I was always told that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That is to say that, yes, it may seem like a simple everyday story, but it's, it's never about the farmer who's sowing the seeds. It, it's never about this particular thing. It's about what God was doing in the world and how this simple story offered a visual aid, if you will, an audible aid to how that related in practical terms to the here and now. 
The word parable comes to us. It's a compound word in the Greek text. Two words, one meaning to throw, and a preposition which means around. And so literally, parable means to throw around. Uh, for example, when we think of a person that's being cold, he or she may put on a coat. They may essentially throw a coat around his or her shoulders. Or he or she may throw a blanket around him or herself. Well, here, when we think about parables, it's taking a plain, simple story and wrapping the truths of God's kingdom in that story. And we find that in this text, there are seven different parables that are taught. There are two that are given some lengthy explanation. And then we also find that there is a word concerning the disciples as they are trying to make sense. Do you really understand these things? And they say, yes, we understand these things. But then we also find that Jesus goes back to his hometown, Nazareth, and tries to perform ministry there, but he's ridiculed because the people assume, oh, you're just Mary and Joseph's little boy. You're just that carpenter's kid. You're just, we remember you when you were knee-high to a grasshopper, and so they take contempt at Jesus. And so as we finish up today, next week we'll move into these parables and look at what, what makes a parable a parable and what makes a parable so effective, not just in the general sense, but specifically in how Jesus presented this teaching to those within his audience that day. My sisters and brothers, it's been good to be with you this day. I hope that you've been blessed by our time of teaching and learning. May the Lord continue to watch over you and care for you in the days to come. May he give you the strength you need to live this faith day by day. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the depths of your word. We thank you for these beautiful treasures that we're able to unearth, treasures that are beautiful, treasures that are challenging to our lives, treasures that we should hold to as being more important than anything else in this whole world. Lord, as we look at that close of chapter 12 and we set the stage for the parables of chapter 13, we know that there are many ways that we still fall short. We still find a little bit of the Pharisees in us and how we relate to you and the things of your kingdom, how we treat other people, whether it's in the things that we say whether it's in the things that we allow into our lives to fill that space. Lord, we know that we continue to learn, we continue to grow, and in order for that to happen, we need you. We need to listen obediently to your Spirit day in and day out. Lord, bless my sisters and brothers until we meet again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. And may the peace of Christ go with you now and going forward.